0: Saturday, September 2nd, 1972, I was hanging out with my gang at Ken Plaza's house. His family was wealthier than most. They lived in this uh, new development called fairway courts. He had a double driveway. Most of us at best had a carport. And this was a perfect place to play ball hockey. Now you've heard the expression dance like nobody's watching but when you play ball hockey you imagine everybody's watching. The entire Montreal Forum, it's always high stakes, it's seventh game, overtime. You're Cornwallet, you're feeding Peter Mojavlitsch, he shoots, he scores, and that's kind of the drama you bring in with ball hockey. But how could I possibly remember all of that that happened 50 years ago? That day is a day that's marked in Canadian history. It's marked in Russian history, and I would argue it's marked in world history. That was day one of the 1972 Summit Series eight games that featured the best of Canada versus the best of Russia. This is game one from Montreal. Ken Dryden is in goal for Canada. The New York Rangers. And that wasn't supposed to be the storyline. What we were led to believe is this is a skip in the park. This is going to be a sweep. I mean, how could Russians and people that played in an industrial league ever take on the best of the NHL? it turned out, it was far from a sweep, fingers bled from nails being relentlessly bitten, and it was a wake-up call for Canadian hockey, but much more. It was the Cold War being played out on the hard ice. It was a Canadian flag wrapped around the entire country way squeezing out our differences. It was boomers becoming teenagers and young adults and thinking about the world versus our world for the first time. And today on Chatter That Matters, I want to relive all of that and more with Scott Morrison, who has just written a book, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever about one of the most dramatic sporting showdowns in history. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter
1: That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: And Scott Morrison, if you're a hockey fan, if you're a sports fan, you know who he is. And since he was a child, he's bled hockey. The guy used to run home from school, get the afternoon paper to look at the box scores. He went on to reporting, broadcasting, writing books about it. He received the Hockey Hall of Fame's Elmer Ferguson Memorial Award. He is one of the most trusted and respected voices and authors in one of the greatest games on earth. Scott Morrison, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony,
1: thanks for having me and thanks for those very kind words.
0: Well, you know, as I was doing my digging on you, I just realized you are so much what I love in my podcast when somebody follows their passion through their entire life, as opposed to, you know, finding himself in a job where they go, I'm just not happy. And I want to turn this interview, if I can, just for a, a bit of a lark into three periods. First, I want to talk about your book in the Summit series. Second period, we're going to talk about your love for the game, your illustrious career, and what you've learned. And third, the world and, and hockey and, the, and how it sort of came together. And, you know, you talked about the series that changed hockey forever. But I think in some ways, it really Opened the eyes to a lot of boomers that there was something bigger out there than that driveway I was playing ball hockey on. So let's start with the book, 1972. The series that changed hockey forever. That title's a big title. How it changed hockey forever. Give me a sense of why you felt that that eight games was such a such a game changer.
1: Well, I think it, it changed the game in many ways, and I, I suppose almost all of them positive. It it broke down some walls that existed at the time and barriers and. Uh, some ways brought the world closer together because it was a divided world, as you mentioned, with the Cold War and that specter uh, hanging over everything. You know, out of it, suddenly we had Canada Cups, and it wasn't just Canada playing the Soviets, but we had the Czechs, the Swedes, the Finns, the Americans, and it was all the elite players, the best players, not just the amateur players playing anymore. And so international hockey was growing, and because of some of the political changes in the world, later on in the 80s with the you know the iron curtain falling russians and and players from the communist countries didn't have to defect to be able to come to north america and play they were allowed to come and play and the game was growing again we're embracing each other if you will all of a sudden you know as phil esposito said in the book he says you look at the, the game and he said we got players from all these different countries, but we don't think of them as being a Russian or a Czech or a Swede anymore or an American. Or it's They're just players. They're players like all of us. And they, they've got that burning desire to want to win and be a champion and win a Stanley Cup in the case of the NHL. So all of that evolution was pretty profound. And then the game itself of how out of that series, both of those teams learned so much from how the other played and the emotion that was brought to the game. In some cases, the emotion that wasn't brought to the game and how we trained, how we prepared. I mean, the Soviets came in and they're obviously in much better condition to start, but what the things that they did off the ice, whether it was training, dry land training, nutrition, the psychologists involved, all of that and how that evolved and we learned from each other. And then just practicing the game and learning the game and developing skills in the game. So, so many different things emerge from that series. And it might well have happened over the course of time, and I'm sure it would because of some of the the changing ways of the world, but it might not have happened as, as quickly. And that series was a launching pad for all of that. And then what it did for our society is a, a whole different
0: change forever. And when I read your book, I felt like I was almost watching a Netflix series, the backstories, and the anecdotes. How did you manage to pull out such great memories for a series that happened 50 years ago? Well,
1: I, I wrote a, a book about the series, and this one is similarly themed because the games are the games and the scores are the scores. Uh, but I did it leading up to the 20th anniversary, and the players were in a different mindset at that point. And then visiting them again 30 years later, just uh, you know, good interview is listening. What was tremendous about the experience one more time was that even though it's 50 years, their their memories of this are vivid. They might not remember what they had for dinner like I did
0: last night, but
1: they remember every moment of that series and every emotion that they felt.
0: You know, I love the how you weave in humor and I, the way you were talking about their training camp and preparation was almost like a National Lampoon movie. Out drinking, running off to hockey schools, you know, they didn't really thought of this as more of a, Probably at a lark, as opposed to really what it turned out to be, which was the world stage.
1: That's all they were told that leading up to it. By and large, there was a few people that had exposure to the the Soviets in international competition that were cautionary. But the players were told that this was going to be a fun series, like an all star festival. Everybody was going to play, and the expectation was that they were going to beat, they were going to win all eight games and win handily, and uh, everybody was going to have a a merry time along the way and then of course and that's how they approached training camp they weren't going hard in camp i tell the story in the book uh, brad park who was from toronto lived in the off season and his wife was expecting so rather than stay with the team at the hotel he stayed at home with his wife and uh he said i'd come to practice the next morning and i'd look at the guys and i'd say boy they had a
0: good time last night (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I really thought was clever is how you use these titles as hooks to bring you in. And and let's just talk about a couple of them. Game one, your title's a shocking start. Give a sense of what the players thought about stepping on the ice and how they felt when they got off the ice. And they were the recipients of a total throttling by the uh, Soviets.
1: They thought it was going to be a good time. The game started exactly the way every Canadian wanted it to. Canada scores 30 seconds in. Within six minutes, it's two nothing, and everybody thinks this the romp is on. But the players knew differently. I actually scored the second goal, and Ronnie Ellis and Bobby Clark can remember this. I came back to the bench and I looked at them and I said, "Guys, this is going to be a very long series." We're in big trouble here these guys are good and they're in great shape and they weren't because that's not what NHLers did in the summer. And when it was over, it was 7-3 for the Soviets. And they're all looking
0: at each other saying, A, what did we sign up for? And B, what just happened here? In your book, you talk about uh, Phil Esposito, you know, gets the first goal, but gets a stick to his head. And he says, I think from that point on, this wasn't a series, it was war.
1: Yeah, they were an angry group and there was a lot of pushback from the Soviets. So I don't know that it was a war in the sense of how they described it as being a war later in the series. But yeah, they felt that this was more than just, it was going to be more than just another hockey series. And you have to understand what the world was like in 1972 and that the Soviets as a country, as a people were, they were a mystery to us in many ways. Nobody traveled there behind the Iron Curtain or very few people did. What we knew of them was a black and white image on the newsreels at night and the things that they were pulling off in the world that we didn't like and we feared. So at that moment, there was just too much shock, shock and awe at that point.
0: Because we had no idea. I thought it was coming. It was going to be like an all-star game. We're going to have some fun, joke around. I didn't, we didn't train, train. Team Canada right now, they've given it their best and they aren't good enough tonight to beat the Soviets. It's as simple as that. And the game is over. And the USSR have defeated Canada in the first game of an eight-game series by a score of 7-3. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. My guest today on Chatter That Matters is Scott Morrison, author of the book 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. Your title, of Chapter Three, is To Hull with Russia. And to take us back to this, this incredible controversy that even the prime minister got involved with involving Bobby Hell, who should have been on that team but wasn't. So, when they were putting the series together, part of it
1: was trying to sell the NHL teams, especially the American team owners, on supporting it. And a lot of them didn't care about it. Were American owners who cares about Team Canada, and they didn't want their players participating. But Alan Eagleson, who was a driving force head of the NHL Players Association, was involved, and, and Clarence Campbell was the president of the NHL. And so, one of the through all the negotiations, the back and forth, and everything else, one of the uh, concessions to the, o- the NHL owners is that it would the only players who would be allowed to participate were players who were under contract to an NHL team on the eve of training camp in early August. And if you remember that the WHA was starting up that fall and they were throwing big money around it at big name players, Bobby Hall being one of them, because he signed with the Winnipeg Jets, the first millionaire in hockey. He wasn't allowed to participate. And Pierre Trudeau, who was actually part of the negotiations initially to help get the the series launched in the first place, he tried to step in and convince the NHL, come on, you got to let this guy play. He's a Canadian hero, et cetera, et cetera. The NHL part of it and Hockey Canada at the time wouldn't wouldn't allow it to happen. And so the mantra of the hull fans was, and they had buttons printed up and billboards around various Canadian cities was to hull with Russia, to hell with Russia, and to hull with Russia at the same time. So the
0: first four games are played in Canada. How do you think the Russian players dealt with leaving the Iron Curtain? And coming into Canada, I mean, you talk about, you know, blue jeans and Coca-Cola in your book, but it must have been almost like a Hollywood movie that was unfolding for them, given the conditions they lived in back there, even though they were treated as heroes compared to what was happening here. Don't
1: forget the toilet paper, too, because that was a big, big find for them as well. But the feeling was like being on Fantasy Island in many ways. Initially coming over, them contemplating playing the NHLers finally having supreme confidence in themselves. But they were scared silly going into that first game and probably played that way over those first six minutes. And then all of a sudden they get a huge confidence boost. And then they're having the time of their life in the sense that they're seeing a great country. They're actually being applauded in many ways by our fans and the media. So they weren't cast as the villains. Our guys were the villains for, to that point in the series. Yeah. They're, they're eating food. They weren't getting at home. They're drinking Coca-Cola. Like it was going out of style. Cause they couldn't get it at home. And, and they were going to movies on the eve of the first game. They go on mass to go watch the Godfather, whether they could understand a word of it. They probably figured out the plot line pretty quick, but uh, they were enjoying their, their time in the country because they were being treated really, really well. And uh uh, experiencing things that they wouldn't necessarily get to
0: see at home. The entire series now moves over to the Soviets. What's the psychological state of Team Canada? Because they're making a lot of roster changes, there's a lot of big decisions that are affecting a lot of egos. What were they like when they just left Canada and headed over there? They were happy to leave Canada, that's for sure, after you know the Vancouver game where
1: they were booed and Phil gave his famous speech. For the people across Canada, we tried, we did our best and uh... So the people that boo us, Jesus. I'm really, I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, uh, the the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. And they just uh, felt and, uh, that the, the country had abandoned them. by that and point. The they the said border our border families border hated border like us, like our friends, border friends border hated border us. Border when border they went to the airport to fly over to Sweden, where they had the stop over there before they ultimately got to Moscow. They played a couple of exhibition games. They said there was nobody at the airport. The country had left us, left them alone. They just didn't want it. They were angry with them. They felt that the team had let them down. And really what happened when they had that stopover in Sweden, you know, remember that these were, that team was from 10 different NHL teams. They hated each other. They didn't like being around each other. And so that was another real challenge for the coaching staff and the players is to, to pull themselves together and, and in many ways the common denominator of being despised by their country or, or so they felt that kind of got them rallied together in, in their time in Sweden and they spent a lot of time there and had some beers and had some fun but they they did pull together and there was an event that happened just before they were supposed to leave for Moscow is that they were told Word had come in that the Soviets had said that their wives weren't going to be allowed to come over or into the country. And then it was, well, if they come in, then they can't stay at the same hotel. They got to stay outside of town and all of this. And the players were really, you know, they're angry anyway at this point. Told Eagleson and then Harry and the coach, to leave the room. And they filled chair at a players meeting. And they just said, what do you want to do? And they, they all said, if they're going to change the rules and the, the wives can't come and family, then we're going home. We don't need this. And so they voted and it was unanimous. And Brad Park told me in the book, he said that uh, that was the first time that group was unanimous about anything. The
0: first game over there, we look like we're doing well, but again, this this incredible offensive juggernaut of the Soviets comes back and win it. We're down, I believe, 3-1-1, right? So it looks like it's almost over. How did they rally the team to to kind of really say, you know, it's not over until it's over? Well, you remember I talked about that Vancouver experience and what they felt about the country and
1: the country felt about them. But I think that speech that Esposito had had an impact, not so much on the team because they didn't hear it, but on the fans, that they suddenly understood that, yeah, these other guys are good, and but our guys are trying and we got to get behind them. And when they got to Moscow, there was 3,000 Canadian fans there and crazy supportive fans. And there was 10,000, 12,000 uh, telegrams and postcards of all of an encouragement and the trainers put them on the wall outside the dressing room. All of a sudden they looked and they said, we're not on our own here. Like the country's behind us. And then you asked that question earlier. And I think that's really when they felt like we're not just playing a hockey series. We're playing for our country here. This is bigger than just hockey. When they lose that game, they blow the lead and they're leaving the ice. And those 3000 fans were standing where they went off the ice. That's where their seats were. And they gave them a standing ovation. And all those players, they never forgot that moment. And that moment meant so much to them that they, they didn't feel they were alone. They had the support. I think it just enhanced the drive to, to have to want to find a way to get the job done so as, as dejected
0: as they were they were inspired by all of that they talked a little bit about and there was obviously the, a lot of the conspiracy of you know the russian didn't just have home ice advantage they were taking advantage of their home in terms of some of the things that they were doing to get into the heads of the hockey players what, what were the things that you felt might have had an impact on their on a canadian team psyche well i, I mentioned they let, playing the head games with whether the wives are come or not and then
1: Guys would say that, you know, they had these intercoms or stereo systems in their hotel rooms that they turn off at night, go to bed. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, the music would be blaring or in the afternoon when they're having their naps. They brought over steaks and beer. A lot of that was disappearing. The hotel staff stealing their food or cutting steaks in half and taking half of them home. And so that was happening. said so They'd take a bus tour somewhere. The bus would show up a half hour late. They'd tell them that, no, the wives can't be on with the players. There's always something to be a distraction and try and get in their heads. And it wasn't the Soviet team doing that. It was just the Soviet system that was doing that. It was the, the politics getting involved. But, you know, I know Brad Park said, he said, one of the things was because we lost so much food, we couldn't give the wives our food, so they were forced to eat the Soviet food, and you know, the food could be very challenging, and the wives weren't very happy, and and Brad said, he said, so two things happened when we got there. They pissed off our wives, they stole our beer. Everybody should know, if you do that to a Canadian player, make his wife angry, and you take away his beer, you make the player angry. (laughs) That's a great one. And then they win game seven, and Paul's playing great, Phil's playing great. They're feeling better physically, now they're feeling better, from a confidence standpoint, because they're winning some games. And now the heat is on the home team because you win game seven, it's one and done. And they're feeling pretty good after uh, pushing the Soviets to that wall. And then now you've put the
0: element of doubt in their mind. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we come back, Scott Morrison, one of the finest minds in the world of hockey, author of 1972, the series that changed hockey forever, relives game eight and a goal that's heard around the world. Hi, it's Tony Chapman and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com checkin check-in. So they go into the final game all tied up. So if you have been writing the script, it couldn't have been couldn't have produced a more dramatic and exciting final. Tonight we are making hockey history. And the teams and fans are really up for this one.
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by
0: RBC. This is Tony Chapman. Download Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcast. Today's guest is Scott Morrison, author, broadcaster, and leader, and his heart pumps hockey. You've been uh, behind the microphone and behind the keyboard and writing books. Give it all. Tell us about what Game 8 was all about. It was history in the making. And, you know, the
1: Canadians certainly felt it, that they were going to make history either the right way or the wrong way, uh, depending on how that that game turned out. And you you talk about a game having everything that, as Ken Dryden said, that game had everything and more that you could never have imagined uh, going in from... You know, there's a controversy. We talked about the head games that were being played off the ice, but there was a controversy about who was going to officiate the game. And the Soviets were clearly wanted, the two guys from behind the Iron Curtain running the game, and then all the negotiation before they finally settled on the two officials. And then early in that game, one of those officials that Canada didn't want, the Soviets did, Joseph Kampala, you know, Parise gets a penalty, J.P. Parisi, and he... Gets so frustrated with everything that happens, gets a misconduct, and then he goes over and chases after the guy and threatens to crash his, his stick over his head. Gets kicked out of the game. What emotion there. You know, the Canadians fall behind five to three after two periods. And now you think, how hard is that to come back in the other team's barn? And suddenly they've got, the, you know, we talked about momentum and all of that and re-energizing confidence uh, but they go to their room after the two periods and just say they had a good feeling about themselves. And and Harry Sinden said, don't try and win the game in the first five minutes and tie it up because you're just going to leave yourself open and we'll be down 6-3. Just chip away. Let's try and get one early enough and then we'll go for the next one. And over the five, last five minutes, we'll take it to them like they've never seen it before. And so Phil sets the table as he did throughout the series, gets the 5-4 and then Kornwaya scores. It's 5 5. The game is tied, but the goal light doesn't go on. And Alan Eagleson, who's sitting in the stands, sees that. He knows the games that the Soviets play. He goes, leaving his seat to charge down to the scorers' table in the penalty box. But around the rinks in the Russian, the Soviet rink, they would have a moat between the stands and the ice. And the soldiers were there with their guns and, and everything in case there is any trouble. And they see Eagleson charging down. They don't know who he is. And all of a sudden, Al's in the grasp of the Soviet Army, and they're mm-hmm. roughing him up pretty good. Well, the Canadian bench sees this, and they're wondering what's happening with the goal and the score. And so the, the bench is empty, and the Canadians go over en masse. Peter Mahovlich climbs over the boards and swinging his stick at the Soviet uh, soldiers, and they rescue Al and drag him across the ice. And uh, he and the trainers salute the fans and <laughs> in a typically Canadian way, you would say. And uh, and then all of a sudden, peace is restored. The Russians declare quietly to the Canadians that, you know, if this game ends in a tie, we win the series because of the goal differential. Well, that had never been discussed previously. So this word gets to the Canadian bench. One more thing that just makes them go crazy and then all of a sudden, we saw what happened, 34 seconds and
0: left. And the <laughs> has it on that wing. Here's a shot! Henderson made a wild step, Wharton fell. Here's another shot, right by the sword! Henderson has and scored for Canada! That's fantastic, and you uh, couldn't write a drama like that. And I remember, as you know, I was lucky enough to be, you know, in a, when the TV set was hauled out in the cafeteria, and this 26-inch black and white, and teacher fooling around with the rabbit ears. It didn't matter. We were there as one. There's two parts of that series that you talk about. And I want to talk to, but one was Bobby Clark talking about Phil Esposito, the best four games of his life. But you also, it's almost like he also was the statesman of the team as well. I mean, he combined. He combined both his talent on the ice with his incredible talent to first calm a country and be the person that really stood up as sort of the leader of the team. Is that fair? Yeah, he was, uh, every player would tell you,
1: he was the leader, the driving force. I mean, Henderson was the hero with the goals and Paul would be the first to tell you that Phil drove that team. And, you know, Harry said it, Bobby Clark said it. Played arguably the best hockey they had ever seen him play. Phil says he thinks he had other moments, but regardless, he did. And you know, it's funny—we tell a story that I hadn't heard before, and Phil told me that you know it was after the fifth game that he was having some heart palpitations, and they quietly took him to a to a hospital to get examined with the Canadian medical team, and uh, uh, the tests they did proved negative for whatever and uh, all they were able to determine and i forget the medical term for it but that he he has a big heart and as it turned out all the country found out how big that heart was but he willed that team to victory he refused to lose and the irony is that when it all started he didn't want to go he didn't want any part of it he was running a summer hockey school with his brother and he he turned he turned down Eagleson Sinden, and then it was finally Bobby Orr who talked to him and convinced him that he had to go, Bobby he said, hey, I can't go. We need you. It might be
0: tougher than all of us think, and you better get there. And uh, it's a good thing he did. Well, it's got to be one of Bobby Orr's great regrets that he had that knee injury and he couldn't play. And w- w- if he had if he'd been in his prime and injury-free, what a difference he would have made as well. No, absolutely. And to his credit, and the players appreciate it, and they talked about it today,
1: how much it meant to them. You know, he came to camp after he had had surgery after winning the cup in the con Smythe, and he came in part way, tested the knee, and it just wasn't ready. Uh, but he stayed with the team, and he, he hoped that once the first, once they got over to Moscow, that he would be able to go. Tested the knee again, and it just it wasn't ready. But he was there every inch of the way with the team, and they they really appreciated that sport, support and seeing him there. And Sinden said he kicked around the idea for game eight of dressing Bobby and just using him on the power play and figuring he'd be a, well, he would raise the the spirits of the team like crazy. The Soviets would see him and be a little bit nervous and that he would improve their power play. But then he ultimately said, he said, the way the officiating was we weren't getting many power plays anyway. So I needed to make sure I had a
0: a sixth healthy body on that blue line. And the other the thing that I want to talk a little bit about is the slash from Bobby Clark. How we reacted to it? How did the Soviets react to it? And how has it stood its time in history? The slash itself
1: speaks to you to the emotion in the series at that time and how important winning was and doing anything to win. I talked to a lot of the players, you know, guys like Ron Ellis and even Phil, and he said, We did things in that series we would never have done in an NHL game before or after, but it was a war in their mind. And, you know, the stakes were so high and the emotions were so high and the pressure. And so, you know, in game six, John Ferguson says in the dressing room, this Harlamov is he's 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 killing us. We got to do something about this guy. And that Clark Henderson Ellis line had been assigned to him from the first game of the series. And so Bobby took it upon himself. He had a chance. He slashed him. Wasn't trying to break his ankle, fracture his ankle. Uh, but he was sending a message, slow him down. And you got to remember, and in, in fairness to Bobby, some players were really offended by it later. At the time, it didn't resonate with anybody. It didn't get a lot of headlines. But it was years later when people recognized it and the Soviets talked about it a lot more that it became a, a bigger news story. And some Canadians didn't like it. Some applauded him for doing it. Bobby has no apologies for doing it. Um, and, you know, as I was going to say that, there was things going on this, on the ice, nasty business on both sides of it. So that wasn't the only nasty thing that happened in the series. It was one because of the prominence of the, of the player that took on a, a grander scale as, as time marched on. But, you know, Ron Ellis told me the story about seeing Gary Bergman, a Soviet Mraov, kicking him in the shins, the skate blade going through the actual shin pad into his leg. And he says, after the game, Gary took off his, his skate and he turned over his boot and there was blood pouring out of it. So there's a lot of nasty business, but again, it speaks to just how that series became bigger than just a hockey series.
0: A long shot by Gustavs. Ryden played it back to the goal.
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest is Scott Morrison, author, broadcaster. I'd also say a historian and a game that means so much to Canada. Everything I read about you you've been living, breathing hockey since you were a kid. I mean, you played uh, Ted Rees Arena, MVP. Did you ever have aspirations of going pro? Well, I think
1: I, through my life, I, I had a passion, as you know, for newspapers and writing as well. But I kind of had in my head that one way or another, I wanted to get to the NHL, whether it was a player or as, as a writer. And then ultimately I never thought broadcasting back in those days, but you know, I played at top level hockey throughout my minor career. And, uh, but I got to a point when that's kind of ironic is that Ken Dryden had changed the goaltending world. Everybody wanted the six foot five goalie. They didn't want the five foot eight or nine guy anymore. And so the mindset of coaches had changed and uh, I had to make the tough choice of, am I just going to make it? No, not to the big time. And how far do you want to grind it out or change
0: gears and work on a career? Did you have uh, parents that lived vicariously through you? They wanted to see like some parents are just, you know, they're so consumed by what they believe is their, their kid's dream, but in fact, is their parents' dream?
1: My dad loved hockey and that's how I got the, the love for it. And, uh, you know, he did everything he could to make sure that I had the, you know, great, good equipment and could play and, and and all of that and the great support. And I guess we all live vicariously to some degree. We want to see our kids succeed. We want to see them do well. We don't want, we don't like to watch them fail or, or struggle or not enjoy themselves. And, you know, he was told very early in my hockey career, especially as a goalie dad, stay off his back. He's got enough pressure on him being a goalie. And I remember we had one incident where, I had had a rough night as a maybe a 12-year-old, I think it was, and poked his head in the dressing room after and said, why are you even wasting my time playing like that? And I said something to him that wasn't very nice and rather scary in those days (laughs) to uh, challenge your dad afterwards. And then as we drove home in silence, he turned to me and he said, I'm sorry, I was the
0: one in the wrong, but don't ever say that to me again. (laughs) That's a beautiful story. What you're talking about, the team, the aspiration, the parents, the child, that but a lot of that seems to be disappearing. Only eight percent of the kids are playing organized hockey. What do you think we can do to make sure that more kids benefit from not just hockey, but from, you know, team sports and all that teams bring them? We have to make it fun. And winning is
1: important, but it doesn't have to be everything at, at certain levels. You know, we have to make it more somehow make it more affordable. Because at the elite level, especially, and if people are chasing dreams, then it becomes very, very expensive because it's not just signing up and paying to be part of an organization. It's the you know, now they have skills coach to go through the summer on ice and not everybody can afford that. You know, we've got to expose the game and show people how it can be fun and a great experience for new Canadians, new people to our country to let them understand and appreciate how much of our heritage it is and how, how much we embrace it and it's part of our lives and then allow them to experience that. And then again, have the
0: ability to
1: afford to be a part of it.
0: And what would you define as your summit series in this illustrious career? And I know it's still going, so I'm not presenting you as a retired in any way, but just w- if you look back at your career, what would you talk about the way the players talked about that series the
1: 1987 canada cup was really special for me for many reasons as uh, all the top journalists from canada and us and the world were there and we're covering team canada start to finish and i just i had a really good series from i felt from a writing perspective i had two major scoops in that series and that i broke the uh, the rick vive trade from toronto to chicago which was major news in the city and during that tournament i broke the story about the player revolt against uh, coach mike keenan a bunch of them threatened to leave the team and go home and i had got that story and a shining moment for any journalist is when you know the press conference follows the story and keenan was asked well what do you think of the story nobody's saying too much about it and mike just turned
0: and he said well i know the guy who wrote it so it must be true The last question I have is more political. Our country seems very divided right now. And you can blame it on social media, you can blame it on politicians. Do you think another series like this can come along and maybe knit us together and realize that first and foremost, we're Canadians, we're not liberals or conservatives, we're not West or East, but we are a country? And that's exactly what happened in
1: 72. We were a divided country and a country that needed to feel good about itself. And that series brought... The country pulled the country together, united them, and it did give us that feel-good moment we so desperately needed and the where-were-you moment in all our lives if we were there to watch it. I don't know if we can reproduce those theories. We've had all the the European players over and playing, and we've had the Olympics where we get charged up, but I don't think we have that same feeling about the world. Hockey's had a, a great ability, certainly in this country, to be a great distraction when we've needed it be a rallying point for us when we've needed it even that 72 series part of the reason it was born is because trudeau knew pierre trudeau knew that the country was divided the country was depressed we'd come off the flq crisis and all of that we needed something to feel good about and uh, maybe there is a way that, that we can create a series that will do it but you'll never reproduce
0: Seventy-two and to a certain degree eighty-seven. So I always end my podcast with the the three takeaways that I get from my guests. And the first one, when you're talking about your dad and sticking his head in the dressing room or standing at the end of the ice and clap, and just the incredible bond and love that came pouring out of you, just the way you look to experience that kid growing and becoming part of a team and stuff. That there is something so special about. Organized sports and team sports. The second is you're just such an incredible storyteller. You bring words, whether it's on paper or in the broadcast, to life, and that's such a beautiful talent because I think in this attention deficit economy, stories matter more than anything else. And third, just the fact that you you pursued your passion. We spend so much time trying to chase financial wealth or a degree or a job that we think brings security, but when you have something that you're passionate about and you pursue it, it makes your heart beat. I think that's a career well done. So for all of that and more, and being a huge fan of yours, Scott Morrison, I appreciate you coming on Chatter That Matters. Well, Tony, I've
1: thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for the kind words. And it's been a a fabulous run and uh,
0: still going. The 1972 Summit wasn't just a hockey series. It was truly an event that united our country. We watched as fans, but on the ice were many of the world's best hockey players. And they began their journey playing as kids in their communities and towns and cities. The same can be said for the Olympians who own the podium, professional golfers who sink the winning putt. It all begins with young people being given an opportunity to play a sport and all the mental and physical benefits that come with it. I want to give a shout out to RBC for what they're doing to support young Canadians from the playground to the podium. RBC Community Junior Golf is providing affordable access to the game for youth in underrepresented communities across Canada. By next year, over 10,000 young people coast to coast will participate and first tee programming and get $5 on course green fees or RBC training ground. It's a talent identification and athlete funding program designed to find young athletes with Olympic potential and provide them with the resources they need to chase their podium dreams. Healthy active children contribute to great communities and someday, one might even score a goal Here's that unites a nation. Henderson made a wild, stab work. spell. Here's another shot right by the sword! Henderson has scored for Canada! Henderson right in front of the net! Chatter that matters
1: with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman.
0: Let's chat soon.